0: Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make A, a comedy docu-series podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make A Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make A Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make A Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make-A are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Something you don't hear every day. Teenage werewolves who live in a whaling village. That's the premise of Jason Guriel's new novel, written incidentally entirely in rhyming couplets. He will tell you why he did that and how he did that. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You gotta imagine it's pretty hard to write a novel. Like this is a lot of work. Now, try and do the whole thing in rhyming couplets. Jason Guriel is a writer and poet, and he did this a few years ago with a book called Forgotten Work. In that novel, like, as part of the story, there's another made-up novel. And since Jason is a writer, who seems to like a good challenge, he decided to actually write that made-up novel. It's called The Full Moon Wailing Chronicles. And he also wrote it in rhyming couplets. Now, there's a lot going on in the book, but here's what you need to know. It is set in the future. The year is 2070 because of... Climate change, disaster, Newfoundland is gone. People have to live in these weird condensed hives. There are werewolf teenagers who live in a whaling village. And just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about with the rhyming couplet thing, this is Jason reading a little passage.
0: Kat had read of flea-sized families, thousands to a tenement in less developed countries. Negligent or fascist governments were shrinking people to a scale that had been deemed illegal. Several global treaties had decreed that bonsai hives designed for those in need could only shrink a person to a size a healthy human eye could scrutinize. And yet, as coastlines crumbled, countries shrank, and space became more precious.
1: That's Jason Guriel reading from the Full Moon Whaling Chronicles. Now, he's based in Toronto, so he swung by the Q studio to talk about how he pulled off this giant literary feat. The entire book is written in rhyming couplets. That's right. Why did you do that?
0: Um, (laughs) Well, I've been writing poetry for a number of years, and I've written about poetry. And poetry is, it's kind of like an insular microclimate. Like, poets often write for other poets, and the people who read poetry are often themselves poets. And I really wanted to write something that could could move outside the poetry subculture and connect with, like— the sort of mythic, intelligent, general reader. So I wanted to do something that was big and entertaining, but that was essentially made of verse. Um, so the whole thing's in iambic pentameter, the whole thing is in rhyming couplets. I wanted it to function both as poetry and as a novel. So you can focus on the rhymes or you can just kind of read through the thing and ignore and ignore all of that. And you know, over time you probably sense there's music and rhythm, but hopefully the story like carries you away.
1: That's the thing I found as I was reading it. Like, sometimes I would have to focus my mind on the rhyming couplets and, like, even say them out loud to hear hear them, to have that gratification. And then other times I had to shut off that part of my brain and read complete sentences as if you hadn't done that in verse. Do you know what I mean?
0: Sure, yeah. yeah. And I think there's probably parts that get more lyrical and then parts where just the narrative takes over yeah. and, and, it, and, and the music sort of... Gets a bit submerged.
1: An iambic pentameter. People's people's brains are probably going back to you know high school and studying Shakespeare and thinking like da 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 da. That's da-da. right. That's to, what be to be or not to be. That is
0: the question. There right? you go.
1: Perfect example. Yeah. This seems like a very hard thing to do. Was it extremely hard to write? And I know this is the second book you've written in this way, but was it very hard
0: to do? It's daunting at the start. What's interesting about writing a verse novel is it takes a lot of effort to advance a little bit of plot. It's like it's like I liken it to being a comic artist. Yeah. Like you can spend all day drawing a page that like a person can read in seconds. So every day I was it was a it was a successful day if I could like write like two-thirds of a page or a page, because you're you're trying to advance a story and develop characters and build in dialogue and balance that with exposition and show, don't tell, all that stuff while simultaneously maintaining that rhythm and, main, and maintaining a rhyme scheme and trying to make the, the the rhymes interesting, right? So there were a lot of things to juggle. Um, but what I did find over time is uh, the more pages I got under my belt, the easier it started to get. And actually, I, I used to write, like, I guess what you'd think of as like a classic lyric poem, you know, like a single one-page poem. Those are kind of hard to write because you're sort of waking up every day to avoid. Mm. right? You know, you you maybe you have, you're struck by inspiration, you know, you write something, and then you're starting over from scratch all the time. So it was kind of fun to wake up to like a plot and there's something to do with these characters and there's always like a rhyme to complete. So a book like this starts to gather its own momentum and then the rhymes start to generate... They start to steer your story a little bit because you'll you'll come up with a word you didn't anticipate using because you had to satisfy the rhyme scheme, and it sort of steers your plot in a slightly different direction. Yeah, and I had that happen a few times.
1: I would imagine that might bleed into life too, and then you start talking <laughs> talking in rhyme or thinking in rhyme.
0: It's it's funny. I, I had to write some stuff in prose at a certain point, and it was hard to like not just fall into like iambic pentameter. <laughs> <laughs> you can't write a regular email anymore. No, exactly. <laughs>
1: So the idea for this book, I understand, started with a seed that was planted in the last book that you wrote. Tell me a little bit about the the inception of this story.
0: Well, towards the end of the last book, um, there's a character introduced named Kat, who's like a 13-year-old. And and in, in a very brief moment, it's describing her life. And she's really into a YA novel called The Full Moon Whaling Chronicles about teenage werewolves, you know, pursuing some whale and i don't even rem- I barely remember writing that you know again you' I was in the late stages of of, of writing a book, and it, that uh, the idea of teenage werewolves and whaling must have seemed like sufficiently preposterous to me at that moment, and it was a throwaway moment in the last book and As I started working on a second verse novel, I kind of came back to that moment and thought, wouldn't it be cool to like take that imaginary book and like make it into a real book? Mm and and sort of grow a novel out of the last one. I've always been inspired by the example of artists and writers tasked with working with an unpromising premise or, like, really, like, mediocre genre material. What
1: does uncom- unpromising premise
0: mean? Well, like, if I said to someone, I'm going to write a, a verse novel about teenage werewolves who live in a whaling village, I don't know. I think that sounds... Kind yeah. Of, kind of weird, okay, right? Okay, got it, yeah. Um, and, but there are a lot which of- Which
1: is the premise of this which book, is the, we should say for people, that you're giving the literal example of the yeah, premise. Yeah,
0: and, and, but I've always been inspired by writers who took some hokey, strange, kind of middling genre material and like elevated it. Mm-hmm. And one example that comes to mind is the great British comics writer Alan Moore in the 1980s was given this terrible comic called Swamp Thing, which was, I think, due to be canceled. And he took over the writing of it and turned it into like one of the the greatest comics ever, ever written. So when I came to write this book, I thought I I, I was looking at that little passage in my last book and thought, wouldn't it be cool to try to take that strange little book that Kat is reading and like make it into its own thing? And and that that became like the rhyme scheme. It became another burden that I was imposing on myself. Like, could I make this weird little book work? Right. Um, And. Early on, I realized that the key to making the book work was to bring Kat back into it, and that I would have two storylines. One would be one would be chapters of this novel that she loves, and the other storyline would be her trying to find the like reclusive author of this book. Mm. And, and that just sort of, and then after that, the book just kind of started writing itself.
1: Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. So you've got two sort of interweaving storylines, right? We've got this young adult novel that is a central part of, of this book. And then we've also got the idea of this dystopian future that I want to talk about, right? Part of the book is set in the year 2070, and you dig into the climate disaster and what that means for our our planet. How did you approach that part of things? Like, how did you think through, okay, what what version of disaster? How far do I want to go into disaster uh, in the year 2070?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Climate change just seemed like a subject that was unavoidable. When I realized... Half of this book was about sort of seafaring and Mm -hmm. people and these werewolves that sort of live on the waves. I mean, right away it occurred to me, you know, we may live in a future that is going to have crumbling coastlines and shrinking land masses and we're losing our icebergs. So I think the climate backdrop almost felt inevitable um, at that point. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's explicitly a book about climate change but that's certainly like one of the backdrops you know you know William Gibson the the Canadian science fiction writer mm-hmm. he said somewhere once his science fiction novels are always secretly about the present mm-hmm. and that most science fiction is really kind of about its own moment and that's the case here you know like there's there's little flying cars called Tesla trouts in this novel and the internet is called the Zuck. Do with that what you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although the main thrust of the book is about fandom and 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 the search for this writer, the texture of the the background is definitely informed by our world in a lot of ways. Even even though it's a fantastical book in a lot of respects.
1: Well, I'm thinking too about the character Poe and that Poe, you know, owns the last brick and mortar bookshop, right? Yeah. And, and the books in that bookshop are called Dumb Print. That's right. Which is, I can't help but read as a comment on now and what's happening with our bookstores. And I'm wondering, you yourself, as somebody who is an author of books, do you have any um, bit of, do you have anything in common with, with Poe in terms of being sort of like the poster child for maintaining brick and mortar and print and analog?
0: Oh, he's totally me. Oh. I'm, I'm, <laughs> an, I'm, a, I'm an analog obsessive we stopped in Belleville yesterday, and I went to the mall because there's a Sam the Record Man. Oh, the last Sam the Sam the Record Man in Canada, and so I had to go and buy some. You know, music on compact disc. For, you know, for my, ki-
1: yeah, for the kids who are listening, this was a, a real brick and mortar record store where you could go and touch and hold these compact discs that you're talking about in your hands. Yeah, that's right. Hand. But you yeah. know
0: what? You know what's interesting in communities outside of big cities like Toronto, there's still a need for some of those those stores. And 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 Poe in the novel, early on, as, as you say, he's he has he runs a store and he specializes in like books that are not made of you know, nanoscopic robots and like old school print. Mm -hmm. And what this book is about in my previous book, they're about people who are, even though they ostensibly live in this futuristic world and there's an internet and they have access to everything, they're searching for stuff that is not like readily available to them. You know, they're, they're searching for some obscure, lost, coveted piece of physical media or this like reclusive author that they just can't get access to. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about any of this as I was writing it. But in retrospect, I think we're going to see a huge backlash to things like AI and the turn that social media has taken, where people are going to reinvest themselves in physical media and books and records and print and 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 so on. That maybe that's the utopian element of my of my sci-fi, but I'm trying to keep that flame alive. The the kind of obsessive fans who still want to hold their books
1: and the survival of art. That's something that I find yeah. really interesting about. Your book. I mean, this is the dystopian future is a world in which Newfoundland does not exist anymore, and yet Moby Dick still exists. That's right. Like you make reference to other art, to the song uh, "There She Goes" by the Laws, and and Moby Dick is a part of this. And your your book is in conversation with other works of art, which are in conversation with other works of art.
0: Oh, completely. Yeah. And and "There She Goes" by the Laws. They were a Liverpool band. The guy who wrote that song Lee Mavers, was an analog obsessive trying to make music in the 1980s and and he never officially approved the release of his his one album cuz he hated how it, he said he couldn't That's right. He wanted the pure 60s sound and he it was you know the 80s who had a very kind of shiny synthetic sound and he could he and he's never released anything since then. So even that little song is a is written by a, a, one of he's like one of my characters in a sense you yeah know? like he's he's sort of he's a bit of a romantic
1: and he represents an idea that you're asking us to explore right
0: yeah I mean I th- I think he represents an an idea of like holding on to some elements of our of our Tradition and right. and and our kind of cultural inheritance, e- even as these things are being swept away by, you know, the Zuckerbergs of the world. That holding on to shared cultural texts, uh, even as our land masses are are potentially um, dissolving.
1: What's your role in all of that as an artist? Like it seems almost like you are on a mission to be. Part of that preservation, with what you're doing here.
0: Well, you know, I'm trying to sound smart for you, but I don't I didn't have those thoughts in my in my head when I was writing it. Like I, I, I really and truly I I'm wearing my critics hat now, I guess, but yeah. I and maybe writers are not their own best critics at times. Um, but when I set out to write this, I really just wanted to write something that was just really entertaining um, hmm. that would really hold that would sort of grip audiences. And, and I wanted to, but, but again, to do it in this slightly archaic form and to maybe challenge people to, to wrestle with that a little bit. Um, but, you know, I didn't have a, I sometimes think if you set out with, with a very noble mission, you can run a agro- run aground pretty easily as an artist. So I, you know, this, book touches on all kinds of issues, but at heart, I hope it's just an entertaining page turner.
1: You are a dad of two young kids. You had two young kids while you were working on this novel and imagining the future. How did being a dad and thinking about the future that your kids are going to inherit and the art that they're going to inherit someday impact what you wrote in the full moon Wailing Chronicles?
0: I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I co-dedicate it to my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about what their world's going to look like. And I guess some mm-hmm. of that anxiety does filter into this book. The book's also kind of fun, though. Like, there are, oh, I, it is I, fun. You know, yeah, like, it's really fun. I, and there are, I guess what I, sh- I should leaven everything by saying, I think there are optimistic things around te- the technology that uh, it's emerging. It's a com- complicated portrait. I do worry about what their world will look like, what social media, the impact it will have on them. It blows my mind when I think about the fact that my kids could be alive in the 22nd century Mm -hmm. because they are, it would be very easy for them to be alive if they have relatively healthy lives. And that takes the top of my head off because I have no idea where we're going to be. But, you know, uh, I I just wanted to, I don't know, at the end of the day, I want to create something fun And, uh, and I, and I hope, uh, I hope we'll enjoy it one day. We'll see. So
1: what's next for you? Would you ever write a book in verse again?
0: Maybe not for a while. (laughs) I need to take a break. I got to come up with some fresh rhymes as well. You know, like (laughs) you can, you can overdo it. I, I have a thought as to what a third one could be in this world, but I think I'm, I might, I might be a little ways away from, from writing it. We'll see how this one does.
1: Sounds good. Well, congratulations on on this book. It's really an amazing feat. Jason, it's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was my conversation with author and poet Jason Guriel. His latest novel is called The Full Moon Wailing Chronicles, and you can get it now wherever you get your books. And that's it for Q Today. The show is produced by Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Lise Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, and Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Grey, and Kelsey Mohammed. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our director is Matthew Murphy. Our engineers were Sam Hashimi and Austin Pomeroy. Our intern is Mofet Adeniran. Our senior producer... Is Beza Safa. Huh? And McKeegan is our executive producer. I'm Talia Schlinger sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.